You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I think even my name conjures up visions of someone who probably rides to work on a horse. There are a lot of stereotypes about the Native people. Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Wilma Mankiller today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Wilma Mankiller's journey into leadership of the Cherokee Nation wasn't something she'd planned. She started as an advocate for rural development in her community and gradually rose through the ranks. Then, in the 1980s, Mankiller was the first woman elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Her story, as she recounts in this 1993 interview, was a story not just of her personal resilience, but also a testament to the strength of Native American communities. So here now, from 1993, Wilma Mankiller. Well, I think there's such a vacuum of accurate information about Native people in the general culture um, that uh, the opportunity arose to do a book. Actually, I was asked to do a, a straight autobiography, and, and since I don't view myself outside the context of my uh, community and my tribe and history, I wanted to do this kind of book, part autobiography, part history, and also give the reader a glimpse into traditional uh, tribal practices. And so uh, you know, the time was just right. I had a publisher, St. Martin, so I had uh, an interest in doing a history. My editor is a historian, and uh, so it just worked out very, very well. It is sadly inappropriate that we know so little about the Native American peoples. That's correct. One of the things that's astounded me is that uh, in the 1840s, after the Cherokees were removed from the southeast to Indian Territory uh, on the Trail of Tears, very few people were aware that we started some of the first schools west of the Mississippi, uh, that we printed our own newspapers in Cherokee and English, that we uh, built our own uh, judicial system and uh, built beautiful institutions of government, which still stand today as some of the oldest buildings in what is now uh, Oklahoma. And uh, so people are stunned when they find out that we did that in the in the 1840s. It's a shock to people because they just don't know that much about Native people. I am shocked and stunned to find people who assume that the Cherokee have always been in Oklahoma, That's that they correct. have no memory, Trail of Tears, what's that? Right, uh-huh. And what a tragic thing that is. It is. It was actually one of the darkest pages, I believe, in American history and certainly in Cherokee history. They but made all the darker by the fact we don't remember it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And one of the things that I did in the book is I included a map that uh, shows the reader uh, the uh, route of the Trail of Tears so that they can uh, sort of conceptualize what a removal by foot across several states uh, in 1838 and 1839 might have looked like. It'd be like somebody telling everybody who lives within the sovereign state of Maryland, folks, we're going to take you all out to Kansas. That's right. And That's right. Uh, you don't have any choice. You have to go. That's exactly right. Let's pack right. up your stuff. We're going now. That's exactly right. And, and being uh, removed uh, uh, by U.S. Army federal troops and uh, having your property confiscated and that sort of thing. So that's not a long, long time ago in American history. It was a little more than 150 years ago. And, uh, but anyway, there's a lot of things about history that, uh, that America doesn't know. I also thought it was important to chronicle the life of a contemporary Native woman and uh, just sort of, and it brings up issues because, because I've been involved in so many things that it would give me, it gave me an excuse to talk about contemporary issues as well. 
Well, now, you yourself were relocated, not in the same context that the Trail of Tears, perhaps, but you were found yourself uprooted. Yes, in, in the uh, uh, 50s, uh, my family, very large family, one of 11 children, uh, were farmers in, in a rural, very isolated community in eastern Oklahoma. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs developed a uh, program, which they just call the Relocation Program, and it was designed to break up uh, tribal communities and uh, take Native families from rural communities all over the United States and move them to places like New York City, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, and our family chose San Francisco. And uh, so we uh, got on a train in Stillwell, Oklahoma, a little town in Oklahoma in Adair County, and we uh, left a community that had no paved roads, no electricity, no indoor plumbing, uh, where we'd uh, made our living by farming and got on a train in the little town and, and uh, three days later ended up in downtown San Francisco in the Tenderloin District at the Keys Hotel. And uh, so the Better Life for us ended up uh, being a housing project in San Francisco uh, called Hunter's Point. And uh, so anyway, that's, you know, that's just an example of, uh, of uh, another failed federal policy and that uh, continuing uh, welter of policies that, that uh, over the last 150 years that have been designed to break us up as a people. And we, we do better when we stick together, I think. However, if there was one benefit to come out of that, your, your political activism was born in California, was absolutely, it not? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that uh, the kind of exposure and awareness I got to uh, native issues nationally and specifically California uh, native issues was uh, just uh, invaluable to me and uh, also that was a very political time in the Bay Area in the late 60s and the early 70s there was a big free speech movement going on at UC Berkeley the music had changed uh, middle class young people from all over the United States were coming to the Bay Area to the Haight-Ashbury and who were uh, challenging the lives that their, their parents had, had lived uh, civil rights movement was was going on, women's movement was uh, going on, and right in the middle of that, a group of students from UC Berkeley and San Francisco State decided to occupy Alcatraz Island, and uh, so at claiming, citing a provision in an old treaty uh, that said unused federal land uh, should revert to back to Native people, and uh, so it was a very, uh, very interesting time, that particular time, uh, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so it was kind of like a political watershed for me. My whole family got involved in the Alcatraz Island occupation. It is also another sad commentary on us that we don't pay much attention to Native American affairs until you take over Alcatraz or until Wounded Knee or uh, you know, some other uprising. Yeah, well it's true. We're a very small part of the population. We're uh, probably one half of one percent of the population in the United States. We don't make uh, big political contributions to candidates and so to get any attention from uh, either the presidents or uh, the United States Congress, we have to get the attention of people who will do things just because they're the right thing to do, not because we have uh, immense political power or wield immense political power. After this short break, Wilma Mankiller talks about the traditional roles of women in Cherokee culture. There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything. Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode. Now back to my 1993 conversation with Wilma Mankiller. 
How did you first decide that you wanted to be active in the leadership of the Cherokee? You know, I actually never made a conscious decision to do that. I just happened to, uh, I liked doing what I was doing, and, and uh, I liked doing development, rural development with my own people, and uh, I'm kind of a workaholic. And uh, so I continued to move up in the organization, and then our chief, our former chief, had developed systemic cancer in 1982. And uh, wh while he was out uh, receiving chemotherapy or when he was in the office, he was always very sick, and he would ask me to do things that were outside my job. Then I was uh, head of the community development department, which I'd founded. And uh, so he, uh, when he recovered, and decided to run for chief in 1983, asked if I would run as deputy chief. And so that's how I got into the political side of the tribe. And uh, he resigned in 1985. He took a job under the Reagan administration uh, as the head of the BIA. And I moved up to his position. And then in uh, 1987, I ran for chief on my own and won. And then again in, in uh, 1991 and won uh, there as well. Did you not feel like you were really chief until you'd won on your own? Uh, absolutely. I felt totally, uh, uh, I guess, um, I don't know how to describe it. I felt like I didn't have a mandate after he resigned. I had his counsel, his staff. Uh, we were very, very different. We, we, of course, had a great relationship and worked well together. But people who would support me wouldn't necessarily support him, and people who would support him wouldn't necessarily support me. And so that period of time was probably the most difficult time uh, uh, trying to lead without a mandate and also without my own people. And then when I was elected on my own in 1987, I then I felt that I could, I could put together my own uh, programs and ideas and staff and move forward. I guess politics is politics no matter what nation That's you're leading. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I found that out. And I found out in talking to women who are uh, serving in elective positions, uh, whether they're in national government or state government or tribal government, there are a lot of similar kinds of experiences. You know, that Margaret Thatcher says in her new book that many men that she worked with in politics suffered from the same problems that they attributed to women, vanity and an inability to make tough decisions. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, you know, I think this isn't my unscientific observation. I think that women, the women that I've worked with, are able to keep, and to use a male expression, to keep their eye on the ball. And, uh, and uh, when they want to get, when women leaders want to get a clinic built or a business started or, or something like that, they are able to stay absolutely fixed on, on getting that done and don't get into all their peripheral ego, ego battles and a lot of other, other kind of side uh, side uh, issues that take them away from the from the goal. Well, one of the things that you pointed out in here was that before the invasion by Europeans, the Cherokee Nation and its history had a very uh, there was a very a lot of equilibrium between men and women, and that that was all upset when when we came over and showed you really how to do things. Yeah, that's very true. That's very very true. The um, women and men, I think, had more ha balance and harmony between them there. Uh, there was more of a uh, more of an understanding between uh, men and women. Uh, we traced our ancestry, the uh, clans through women. Uh, uh, women uh, were consulted in matters of importance to the tribe. 
when the early Cherokee delegations would go to meet with delegations from the colonies, they, uh, uh, we would always have women in our delegations, and the uh, uh, representatives of the colonies would not have women. In fact, I've always wanted to write an essay because one of our chiefs said during that uh, period of uh, early development of this country, he said, well, where are your women? And, uh, and I've always wanted to do an essay and uh, title it and, and call it Where Are Your Women? And, uh, and, then t uh, and then talk about the difficulty that the women have had attaining leadership positions in this country. It hasn't been easy for you, has it? No, it has not been easy for me. By the time I ran for election in 1983, of course, our history of uh, having balance and harmony between men and women had been uh, sort of forgotten. And uh, so, uh, and I had our own, my own people questioning whether women should be in leadership roles. So uh, it's, it, was, it was difficult. I would say the first four years from 83 to 87 were the most difficult. And then after I won an election on my own, a very difficult election, uh, then things uh, became um, much easier between 87 and 91. And then I was elected overwhelmingly in 1991. So I think people now either disagree with me or agree with me based on issues, not on gender. I wonder how many people, how many Americans realize that they have a head of state, a head of sovereign state living within our borders, who is a woman who is leading her people and and has been reelected and and is uh, is a leader. I wonder how many people realize. Uh, I don't think many people are surprised, and I think that uh, I think even my name conjures up visions of of uh, someone who probably rides to, to, to work on a horse or whatever, I don't know, but there are a lot of stereotypes that I've uh, run into uh, about uh, Native people. So I, I, I lived in Tulsa in 79 and 80, and it, it, it shocked my sensibilities even in that pre-politically correct era that as late as 1979 and 80 that the Needham tire chain in Tulsa would have these huge revolving signs on one side that would say, Ugh, yeah. and on the other side, you need them tires. Yeah, I there's thought, that kind of yeah. ridiculous stuff. I was very embarrassed. On. Well, to and let me tell you a story about 1993. We're a very large tribe, employ lots of people, have a 78 million dollar budget, 150 thousand enrolled members. I went to a foundation in Tulsa, 80 miles away from from our from our home, and. Uh, uh, and I, I went to uh, talk with this foundation about uh, perhaps funding a Cherokee archives, which would be available to not only uh, Native people, but to scholars who are studying mm -hmm. Cherokee history and that sort of thing. And so uh, they had never even heard of the Cherokee Heritage Center. And uh, this is 80 miles away in 1993, uh, less than 90 days ago. And uh, so I went in cheerfully and, and uh, with my uh, proposal with architectural drawings and the whole thing, and I was stunned. And uh, it was just shocked and a little bit discouraged. So I don't think we're going to be able to raise money for our archives in Oklahoma. <laughs> Wilma Mankiller was awarded the highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And then in 2022, her likeness appeared on the U.S. quarter-dollar coin. Mankiller died from pancreatic cancer in 2010. She was 64. You can get a copy of Mankiller by Wilma Mankiller by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. Heardeverything.com is where you'll also hear my interviews with two other women pioneers. My 2000 interview with Betty Friedan. I didn't set out to make a revolution at all, you know, but I certainly didn't realize I was going to start 
the most massive revolution of them all. And my 1998 conversation with the woman who would have been America's first female vice president, Geraldine Ferraro. When I looked at, it was not only all these people screaming and there was such joy, but I was also looking at tears rolling down people's faces, including some of the women reporters. And as you know, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything. A year before 9-11, suicide bombers attacked the USS Cole as it was en route to the Persian Gulf. So next time we'll revisit my 2012 interview with the commander of the Cole, Kirk Lippold. When a third boat came out, we anticipated that was going to be the third garbage barge. It came to the exact same spot where the other garbage barge had been in the middle of the ship and then detonated for the first time the Navy experiencing a waterborne IED. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>